Greetings, boys and girls of Earth. Welcome to another edition of Short Ends. These are interim documentary episodes about all things cinema in between regular episodes of the show's main series, A Filmmaker's Journey. We're having a number of short ends and interview-only episodes over the next few weeks while I'm away traversing the European landscape. This show is supported in part by Muse Storytelling by Still Motion. This is a patent-pinning process for telling real-life stories, and it's at the heart of what catapulted their little Canadian wedding studio into the world-renowned film production company shooting videos for Fortune 500 companies, winning Emmys, and giving presentations at TEDx in the United Nations. Go to LearnStory.org and sign up for their How to Conduct Remarkable Interviews course. If you're one of the first 50 people to sign up with the offer code INTERVIEW, you'll get one-third off their regular rate and pay only $99. That's at LearnStory.org. We thank Muse Storytelling for their support. Be sure to stay tuned after the credits for a couple of great deleted scenes, including a discussion about Spike Jones's Her, and a second conversation about what went astray with a Star Wars franchise post the original trilogy. So lots of great discussions are in this episode. Now, enough with my babble talk. Let's get on with it. Last week, I had a special bonus episode wherein I explored the question... Is Star Wars science fiction or fantasy? Now, one of the obvious reasons as to why it's considered sci-fi is because it takes place in space and has spaceships and robots and androids and laser pistols and whatnot. But does that alone make a film sci-fi? And what makes a film a good sci-fi film? Is it how cool the gadgets are? Is it how well-grounded the science is? Or maybe is it possible that it has nothing to do with science at all? You know, for you, what makes a good sci-fi film? For me, I would say um, I, I very much like what science fiction has the ability to do when it comes to social commentary and political commentary. That's friend of the show, movie review and television pundit, actress, YouTube personality, and self-proclaimed nerd, Clark Wolf. Because oftentimes we're talking about there's been, an, you know, you establish a world, but there's been a change in the environment, whether that's socially or physically, um, and uh, and how people are interacting, um, and uh, in you know, and and I I really enjoy that. You know, I was thinking about like District Nine, for instance. I would consider District Nine a science fiction film. Sure. sure. Um, and, and in so many ways, that is just a beautiful critique on class and race and um, and, yeah. and just bigotry across the board, essentially, uh, and, and what can happen when we as humans allow ourselves to to um, do these really atrocious things as a society. And so, so to me, like, that's a perfect example of what I love about science fiction. I love that example because I think that's one of the things that has made some of the best science fiction, both movies and television shows, stand out. I mean, it's no secret that, you know, Star Trek in its initial run in the 60s use the platform to talk about race issues and to talk about political issues and war issues and um, 
when you think about films, or you know, I think you know, District Nine is a, is an excellent example of that as well. Like like for me, like a great sci-fi is one where um, the science fiction isn't front and center. Like the story or the concept or the theme is front and center, and the science fiction is just the stage in which it's presented. Yes. But you could like transfer it to anything. Like you could transfer it to a western or or to some other place and get and get like the same story and the same message. Absolutely. I think you you hit the nail right on the head um because, you know, like Ex Machina is I think a good example of that mm. too, you know. Mm. I mean, I, I would consider Ex Machina to be a science fiction film and yet it takes place basically in one room uh, mm -hmm. for a lot of it, and it's people talking. And, um, you know, that. so, but the fact that there's this incredible technology where we believe this, this android or this robot, you know, I mean, that's, that's pure science fiction. However, the fact that she's an android is sort of, you know, like you said, it, it's, not, it's not front and center. What the characters are going through, that is what's front and center. You notice Clark mentioned District 9, the critically and commercially successful feature film debut of South African writer-director Neil Blomkamp. Neil's sophomore effort, Elysium, falls squarely again in that social commentary camp. It's the story of a future world overrun with crime and poverty, while the richest 1% live protected lives on the space station Elysium. I asked filmmaker Adad Warda on his take on this sci-fi trope. Adad is the creator of the sci-fi series Sky City Haya, currently in pre-production and raising funding for a full-blown TV series. The world once glimpsed of his magnificence, but sadly, it was not to last. Talking about a world where we give back to our community. A world where we help secure our future! It's about a post-apocalyptic future where people live on floating cities. So I challenge Adar to share with me what sets his project apart from other sci-fi films or TV shows that have similar tropes. So one of the things I want to ask you, Adad, and you know, Tom, you can chime in too, is is this idea of comparison and this idea of developing and finding your own voice? Because these are the topics that we are exploring, in, you know, the season on the show, mm -hmm. and. You know, I was asking you about the common tropes, and, and the truth is, there's rarely anything that's new under the sun. I mean, so it's it's not at all a, a critique of what you guys are doing, um, but knowing that you did, you know, as the visionary, have a particular purpose and vision with what you're doing with this particular trope, um, yeah. you know, I wanted to ask you and kind of talk to you about you know, your thoughts and processes towards approaching what is a common trope and the intentional decisions you made in the story and the casting uh, and the production to make it same but different. Does that make okay. sense? It does, yeah. Um, Story-wise, what comes to mind is I also don't like it when many – science fiction or post-apocalyptic movies have a little title crawl that explains everything and then you jump into the story. I feel like it's a cheat. Although I do have to say my one exception is Star Wars. I happen to like the way that one was done. Right. Um, but most of the time they just have this little text that comes up. Blade Runner has it. Elysium had it. A lot of them has it. have it. Um, and uh, in mine, I actually want to make the show intro, the series show intro, uh, a political ad 
by the city to convince the people to vote yes on the initiative to build more cities. And within that, it obviously uh, has a general overview of recent human history and how they, with the city, have saved humanity. And that will become uh, uh, your backstory. But I like the fact that it's within the context of the story itself. It's not an extra story, I don't know what you would call it, text that is meant to lead you in and simplify the introduction to it. So I didn't want to do that uh, by adding a little text introduction. I wanted to find a way to introduce it in a way that would be realistic within the story, within the world. I I, I, I like that. So it it sounds like what you did, and correct me if I'm wrong, then, Mm -hmm. is you saw, you know, you, you have this, you know, this common trope. You, you saw these elements of the trope that are very common that and you said, OK, how can we take the same execution of exposition? Because that's essentially <laughs> what they are, right? It's exposition. Yes. How yes. can we take the execution of exposition, the past, you know, the way they did in the past with a title crawl or, you know, a white on black text or whatever? Sure. How can we take that exposition concept and turn it on its head and you know, how can we come up with an idea to provide an exposition in a way that's more creative? Um, what Was that like an initial, like, did you know right away that's how you wanted to do it? Or was it, or was it more like you knew you wanted to do something different, but you kind of played around with different ideas? Like, what was your process in coming up with that creative, original, um, expositional intro? Uh, I don't remember if that was uh, an older original idea I had or if it was newer. I feel it just came up organically, so I can't remember exactly. But my intention with this whole project, I feel not not consciously, although now I'm conscious of it, has been to, to say to people, I'm a science fiction fan, but I'm also a critic of a lot of science fiction films and television series because they don't live up to what my expectations are about what I think the best of science fiction can be. Mm-hmm. So. Within that, that context, everything that I'm doing, uh, not everything, but a lot of the things I'm doing are trying to find what I feel is an improved way to make people watch something that feels so familiar as if it could be happening today, but it's in this future world and we can relate to people through human endeavors and fear and pain and jealousy and love uh, within this grand world setting. But I want it to be something that people can watch and not feel like, well, that's far away and that universe in the future. I want them to feel like it's immediate and it's believable so that it has this hard, gritty reality to it, kind of like what, let's say, Christopher Nolan did with the Batman series where he made it less comic booky and more, hey, this is just uh, some vigilante that's rich and has access to equipment. Okay, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Got it. Got it. And, and also making all of these individual uh, uh, episodes be very story-driven and centered around uh, a, a few of the characters, and then they were also will tie into the, the master uh, master plot of the overall series. Right. So they will add to it as you as you as you each episode as you see it. Then this is an underlying plot line that's going to be uh, taking place, and these characters will support that in some way. That last person you heard was Adad's producing partner, Tom Wineland. I asked the two about their thoughts on what makes a good sci-fi story. And Tom was the first to chime in. I think, first off, it's storytelling and characters. I think those are the two main things. If you get great characters telling a great story. One thing I really uh, have have gotten really kind of despondent about science fiction 
um, movies and stuff is that they, they seem to all be about this, uh, you know, blow up scenes and explosions and it always ends in a giant finale of the good guys winning out over the bad guys, you know, in a very simplistic way. And I, I, I get why Hollywood is doing that because they're more focused on the tentpole pictures. Right. And then if they can get, you know, people involved in a particular character like the Marvel characters, and I'm not saying they don't do some of these well, but they just seem overly simplistic. And it's it's not so much about the story, it's more about like we can show off some crazy effects and blow things up and stuff like that. Um so I'm I'm hoping that this series we can present a fresher look and get more involved in, in the storytelling aspect of it. And, you know, in a way similar to what they're doing with, I think, True Detective, that TV yeah. series. Yeah. So I think that, that that is kind of, you know, kind of our benchmark or gold standard um, to doing this. And also the new series that's on USA that Adad mentioned, which I've seen three of the episodes. I think the fourth one comes out today, which is Mr. Robot. And I think they're doing some interesting things with that series as well. I would I would add that the a sci-fi or fantasy has the extra added responsibility of trying to create a believable, nuanced, detailed world, ah. and that's very difficult because you have to figure out the rules so you know what the characters can and can't do, and what makes a maverick in that world because you have to know the established, you know. So one of the interesting things for me to create Sky City High is to become a an imaginary. Uh, cultural anthropologist. You know, how do people uh, live? What do they eat? How do they pay for things? How do they get around? What do they think of themselves and the rest of the world? What do they believe in as far as politics goes? So that you have to learn about all the daily rituals and daily life uh, and all the details about how the city works. And I think that's one of the main characters is the city itself. Um, not the, wow, it's up in the sky and it's floating and things are flying around. But what do people do every day? Do they eat you know, different food. Do they call on phones? Uh, what's 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 an annoying thing that happens all the time? For example, uh, if you're a newcomer to the city, you often get sky sickness. Uh, each island, obviously, is as stationary as possible using computers and and uh, different jetpacks or whatever they call them, little ways to keep it steady. I forget what they call them on like the, the shuttles in space where they have a little hovercraft. Yeah, well, I mean, they're not they're not yeah, hovercraft. Hover. I mean, Anyway, the yeah. technology doesn't matter, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, they, 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 they keep them as stationary as possible, but obviously they're not buoyed or connected to anything you know, on land or by a pole. They're floating up in the sky, so they move slightly throughout the day. And if you have just come to the city for the first time, you might get queasy, you might throw up because you're not used to that subtle movement that doesn't exist on land. So these kind of details are, I think, what makes it believable and real. And then add to that a compelling story which is based on human principles and love and loss and desire and jealousy and pain, then it becomes real. And you're right. I think I completely agree with you. The best science fiction or fantasy is when the wow factor is the icing on the cake, not the cake itself. I've seen a lot. More than you know. If you get a chance, I strongly suggest checking out the work Adad and Tom are doing with Sky City Hyatt. Just fly on over to SkyCityHyatt.com. I'll also have links in the show notes. You can also find links to my full uncut interview with Tom and Adad in the show notes for this episode as well. I think with science fiction films, the the real key and, and what I've always loved about them is they show us uh, a potential future. 
That's the voice of Remy Le Victoire, or Rem for short, co-host of the Sci-Fi Movie Podcast, one of my fellow Podcastica podcasters. It was only natural I'd have one of those shows co-hosts on this special episode. And I think what happens with good sci-fi is it poses the questions about the technology that we create and how we use it, and then possibly how we might be affected by it. If you, if you look at something like, you know, the Terminator films with Skynet, you know, is this going to be our future as we create more and more technology that's becoming more and more intelligent? Or will we have a future like Battlestar Galactica, where we, we create the Cylons and they ultimately destroy most of humanity? I, I think science fiction, when it's done well, it helps us to look at ourselves and examine our creations and what would happen if we created something that possibly got away from us or maybe a technology that we, we didn't quite know how to work with. So I like imagining a future that's positive, but we do have to see that there are futures out there that are somewhat dystopian. And, you know, we have to entertain the possibilities that some of the creations that we make may not be the best things for us. And I think sci-fi is a good exploration of ourselves as a culture and what we do with the technology that we create. That's, you know, a theme that's come up with other people who I've uh, talked to about this topic, this, you know, sci-fi, really good sci-fi being this mirror that we can look at ourselves in, in terms of, you know, how we interact with each other on a cultural basis, on a racial basis, on a political basis, and, you know, this idea of looking at the, our technology and and what we create today and the effect it can have on us, you know, tomorrow, um, you know, I think is something that is really, you know, stands strong is something that is uh, a key aspect of, of of good sci-fi and you had mentioned the day the earth stands still stood still what was it what is it about that film that you think makes it stand up so long well i look at the message behind it because when they came out that was the early 50s and we had just we had just started to perfect nuclear weapons and i think there was a, a cultural fear around the atomic the, the atomic bomb you know, we've created this vehicle, this 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 weapon of huge death, and and I think there was a lot of fear around what might happen if we let this get away from us, and we almost we almost become gods in our own way, where we create this technology, and then there's a possibility that that technology could lead to our own destruction, and I like how the movie proposed the idea that. You know, okay, humanity has created the atomic weapon. That's great for you, but you know what? You guys are going to be heading into a larger universe with other galaxies, with other cultures. And you need to learn how to play nicely. And the whole idea behind Gort being uh, sort of like an interstellar policeman who would act against the aggressor in any form of conflict, I think it opened up a neat idea because we need to start looking at this now. We need to look at the possibilities that the tools, the technologies, and the weapons that we create – might not only affect Earth, but they could affect other planets in our solar system. You know, we, we look at the, the the amount of space junk we have in orbit around the planet right now. They've estimated there's over 100 million pieces of little tiny pieces of space debris from, you know, exploded satellites and nuts and bolts and screws. Um, 
and I think what the day the earth stood still was telling us is that we're moving into a bigger world and we better move, we better tread gently because there are other forces who really could, you know, kind of smack us down if we abuse our powers. Your choice is simple. Join us and live in peace or pursue your present course and face obliteration. We shall be waiting for your answer. The decision rests with you. In the face of overwhelming odds, I'm left with only one option. I'm going to have to science the shit out of this. That was a clip from the Best Picture-nominated Ridley Scott film The Martian, hugely successful both critically and commercially. The Martian was one of those fantastical adventure stories rooted in science fact. Or was it? I'll tell you what I was okay with and what I wasn't okay with. I was fine with the fact that they're on Mars and there's this huge Martian storm which would not happen on Mars because they don't have that kind of atmosphere. Okay. That's the voice of Tema Steg. She runs Women in Media, is a working production designer, and is associate course director for art direction at LA Film School. She also happens to be a science aficionado and as such had a few problems with the Martian. Okay, then they don't have Martian gravity. Okay, uh, you're beginning to lose me right about there. Because if you're going to take me to Mars, Ridley Scott, you better put me in Mars. I know you can afford a couple of wires, okay? Like if if Hong right. Kong cinema can have people flying through the air, Ridley Scott can afford a couple of wires to have people bouncing around, right? Like mm-hmm. when, you, when you see a movie like Deep Impact, right, they are, in, they created quote-unquote, gravity. They made it feel like they were in near zero-G. Ridley Scott couldn't manage that for the Martian. Okay, fine. I'll let that go, too. Why not? So then, he gets some gas tape, and he starts taping taping up this gaping hole with painter's plastic. (laughs) And then he he proceeds to go back into into his home and he takes his helmet off. And I'm sure in reality, he'd be like, like, this is my last chance and I'm real, I'm going to do this no matter what anyway. But I'm like, oh, come on. I mean, it's like all you've got is some painter's plastic and some holes in, in, in the plastic between you and the Martian, the harsh Martian atmosphere. Yeah. Are you kidding? I was just like, one thing after, it wasn't just one thing. If it were just one little bit or a couple little bits, I'd, I would totally let them go. I really would. But it was thing after thing after thing. You see, Tema's problem is that she forgot that The Martian is really a comedy. One more time, here are the nominees for Best Motion Picture Comedy. Trainwreck. And the winner is The Martian. I got Matt Damon staring at me right now after that whole Golden Globe comedy thing. We only have one award, Matt. That's all we get. I'm like a nerd on a schoolyard and you stole my milk money. I mean, can we just pick whatever category we want to be in? We have an Asian man in our movie. Can I go foreign film now? 
to go back to that question, what makes a good sci-fi? First and foremost, I think you just need a good story. Here's show regular UFC film grad, indie filmmaker, and fellow Star Wars geek, J.D. Cochran. Now, if you're one of those people who believes Star Wars is fantasy and not science fiction, go back and listen to my bonus episode from last week that I mentioned at the top of this show. There are great arguments made for it being either or both. So for purposes of this discussion, suppress your inner geek desire to debate that topic and just absorb the information. I think a lot of times going back to what I said about, you know, before Star Wars, there was corny movies like Battle Beyond the Stars or uh, uh, The Black Hole from Disney, you know, which were cool, you know, fun sci fis whatever. But they weren't on the level of Star Wars, just like 2001 was, you know, such a uh, a. Uh, a transformational type of film, even though it's long as heck and everything, but people weren't making space movies like that until Kubrick came along and made that. So I think that, you know, and I know George has even spoke about when he saw uh, 2001, it like blew him away. Like, wow, this is, you know, he really gets it. He, you know, and that, I know he was inspired a lot with some of the, the visions he had for star Wars based on 2001. So it's, it's, it's that type of lineage with those type of filmmakers making sci-fi where they, you know, they tried to, you know, and you look at Star Wars, it's, it's a simple story, you know, about, you know, uh, that, you know, Luke's journey from becoming a, a simple farm boy to becoming, a, you know, really realizing his full potential as a Jedi and, and where he fits in the universe. But, but again, by them treating it real and not hokey or corny or, oh, it's just a, a, a sci-fi, uh, I think that's what makes a good sci-fi, treating it with respect. Because I think a lot of times I get the impression that filmmakers or studios or whatever, it's like, oh, this is just something for the kids. It's cute or whatever. And so they let a lot of stuff go. Like when I look at Transformers, to me it's just a bunch of nonsense. And I, I can't get into stuff like that. And it, you know, It's amazing to hear you say that and talk about, though. That's J.D.'s wife, Yolanda, former head of physical production at Alcon Entertainment and another regular staple here on Radio Film School you know, the serious factor and it not being corny and now hearing, you know, the interviews of all those cast members who were involved in the initial production and thinking that George was wacky and this whole thing was wacky, especially Alec Guinness. And they thought, yeah. it was, they thought all of it was cornball. Like they was like, you know, they were like, what is this? Like, this is kind of stupid, but we're going to go with it. And hopefully it turns out okay. And and kind of did think it was corny and you know, but but the guy, thing is you know? because based on they what every see what it was getting what the end result was well no one had be. ever done anything like that before yeah. so they think they're doing another uh, they're just doing a long lost in space and they're like okay this is gonna be some silly thing that we've seen on the you know but it's definitely it was Vader not didn't have the voice you know they're right. not reacting to you know the, I don't you know when they were shooting you know all these things I'm sure at, from a shooting standpoint. They couldn't because this film was so new and different. They couldn't have envisioned what how these elements were going to come together into the final result. And also, ILM developed a lot of the technologies that didn't exist, so they had to spend time inventing things to to tell their story. Which is, you know, you don't really hear about that a lot. I mean, it's just like when you people saw the Matrix. And they have bullet time and everybody freaked out. Well, that was a new effect that no one had ever seen before. Like, oh, man, that was so dope. You know, that that was worth the mission to go in and see that, you know, uh, when you when you saw that the first time. And that and it's that type of thing that George brought to Star Wars, where he was an innovator and pushed the medium forward by, you know, developing all these technologies that people could use for their films. I thought the comments J.D. and Yo made were right on the money. Star Wars Episode four was groundbreaking. And as a story, it was fantastic. But then I started to wonder, 
when you look at the prequels and the remastered original trilogy and everything story related you've seen Lucas do since that original trilogy, I couldn't help but think, what happened? You mean what do you mean in terms of like in terms of his, his George? Yeah, with George his prowess as a storyteller. Yeah, yeah. Um, seriously, I think it's something I always try to remain mindful of is that, you know, I I, I think like when when you're not that successful, uh, or you're not this. Uh, I mean, let me rephrase that. When you're when you're not this uber filmmaker, you know George Lucas that everybody knows because you already did Star Wars. But when you haven't done that yet, you know, and you're you're trying to find your way in making this film, you're you're open to a lot of criticism, critiques of your story to make it right. And I and I know he was concerned about presenting the best story that he could and making it the way he wanted to. But at, at also during that time, a lot of people thought he was nuts. Like you mentioned that, I mean, he had a lot of help from studios, even though it was an indie film. You know, there was studio money there to help promote, market, distribute that movie. And and they gave away the rights to, you know, Star Wars. They, you know, George didn't take them. They let them have them because they didn't understand what they had. And I think that there were a lot of people that said, George, you're crazy. We don't understand this, but we're going to go with you because you did American Graffiti, which is arguably one of the, like one of the first blockbuster type films. And so – they, you know, they they put faith in him, and he but probably felt pressure though. Yeah, he point. felt pressure, but the, I, the point I'm getting at is that nobody kind of really believed in him, and I think what happens is like when you go through that type of crucible where you you come out at the end of it, and you're like, and you're touted as a genius that nobody saw what you were doing, then it's like I think hard for you to then go on and take a lot of criticism later on. In other words, everybody was wrong about what you were trying to do initially. So now when you're doing subsequent films, I think that you uh, you you don't really value the criticism because they didn't know what they're talking about, you know, last time you did it. So we've heard from quite a few people about what makes good sci-fi from social commentary to story execution to scientific plausibility. There are a lot of ingredients that can make a good sci-fi. And frankly, I like all of these answers. I do think, though, that the most iconic sci-fi stories, be they films or short stories or novels, all have some kind of insight into the human condition. They challenge our ideals and pose tough questions, whether they be Philip K. Dick stories about what it means to be human, to Arthur C. Clarke exploring our place in the universe, to Neil Blomkamp using the genre to challenge institutionalized racism and segregation, good sci-fi always makes you think. I'll leave you with this comment by Ryan Johnson to entertainment journalist Jermaine Lucier, interviewing him about plot holes in Johnson's 2012 sci-fi flick Looper. I'll have a link to the full interview in the show notes if you want to check it out. It's definitely worth a listen. It, one of the real pleasures of it for me is is doing exactly this. Yeah. Any time travel movie, I love this. You know what I mean? And I'm I'm really looking forward to you know to people staying up, you know, talking about and doing exactly this and getting into. This is the first time I really had been able to get into a spoilery sort of discussion of this yeah. stuff. And, you know, for me, because for me, with time travel movies especially, I've never not enjoyed a time travel movie because of a logical inconsistency yeah. that I found. I, if, it, if it's a great story and it pulls me through and I feel like I had a great time watching it and I get something out of it, 
I enjoyed the movie. And then it's almost just added value after the fact, going back in and nitpicking. And yeah, this isn't Dark Knight Rises nitpicking. This is nitpicking because I want it to, like... Yeah, just exactly. Yeah, about. which is yeah. added fun in my mind. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Stay tuned past the credits for some insightful deleted scenes from my discussions this week. Radio Film School is a production of Daredreamer FM. This episode was lovingly written and produced by me. Chris Husslidge is our co-producer. Music was curated from freemusicarchive.org. Links to artists and tracks are in the show notes. I think more than anything, we learned that good sci-fi has to be set in good storytelling. And one company that is a master at storytelling is Muse by Still Motion. In particular, telling their real-life stories of people and organizations. If you want to learn the process they've used to go from shooting weddings to shooting the Super Bowl to winning five Emmys, the process that wowed the creative directors at Apple, then head on over to LearnStory.org and sign up for one of their tracks. Weddings, corporate, or documentary filmmaking. Use the offer code RADIO and you'll save $47 off lifetime access. Do me this one solid and leave a rating and review in iTunes. I can't tell you how much it means to the show for you to tell us what you think. Your reviews help us get found by others as it raises our rankings. Just click that little write a review link in our iTunes page. You can follow me on Twitter at DaredreamerFM, and you can follow the show at Radio Film School. Join the discussion on Facebook.com slash Radio Film School, and let us know what are some of your favorite sci-fi films and why. That's all for now. Remember, until next time, if the story sucks, I don't care how cool your sci-fi special effects are. Kapla. In keeping with my foreign language sign-offs, that was, um, Klingon. I know, I know, I know, I know. Like, when you think about ways that sometimes you may teach your your, your children um, a particular lesson, and you want to do it in a way, you know, that's like a parable, or you want to tell some kind of story where they don't necessarily know that the story you're telling is about them, um... But they they understand it, and so they're able to um, take it in without feeling like you're judging them, or yeah. without feeling like they're being uh, you know preached at or finger pointed to. Um, and then in the end, being able to realize, oh wow, this is kind of like a morality tale about me. But because the execution is so entertaining or so engaging, you're able to write through and, and soak it in. Uh, as opposed to if someone were to sit down and say, now you need to stop doing, you you know, you you countries need to stop fighting because if you don't, you're going to end up destroying yourselves. Right, but what, if, right. but what if you told this really engaging story that kind of showed that? Yeah. And then I think people tend to learn better when they're not being, like you say, finger wagged or talked down to. And here's what we're going to do to make sure that you understand this point. Right, right. I like the idea of parables and stories. And and I think when a when a person pays attention to a story and we really – try to pay as close attention to the storylines of the films as possible, uh, especially now with the podcast. I used to just watch science fiction films because I love them. Mm-hmm. Now I'm looking at these films and thinking, all right, what's, what is this got for me? You know, what can I take from it? I watched, um, did you see that Joaquin film called her? Yeah. Oh yeah. I love that film. I watched that last night and I was blown away, blown yeah. away. And I, I thought, you know, I've, we've been talking a lot about things like robotics. We, we talked about uh, Robot and Frank and Moon and Ex Machina. And we're, Jonathan and I are lately talking about the effect that robotics is going to have on us, AIs, and how we start to relate to AIs. And, and I think there's, 
right now there's a whole bunch of films that are exploring that. And it's fascinating to me because you take somebody like a, a Joaquin Phoenix who is in this movie and, and how would he relate to this female voiced AI? And uh, would you be able to fall in love with an, with an OS? Right, you know? right. These are questions that we're going to be having to answer in our lifetimes. And I think it's really fascinating because this is the future that we will see in our lives. Well, yeah, I mean, you already see us moving that way. And, you know, in a lot of ways, people get connected to their technology, maybe not to the extent that they, you know, quote unquote, fall in love with it. But I mean, if you think about, okay, what it, what makes something sentient, right? What makes, uh, what what is it about your spouse or your boyfriend, your girlfriend um, or a friend or a family member that makes you fall in love with them. It's how they relate to you. And at, at even though it's biological, but at the basis level, we are in essence kind of programs. If you can. In yeah. A way, I think, you know. yeah, I think what you're saying, there's certain, there's a certain DNA or a certain cultural programming that sort of acts as a glue to keep us together because in order to survive earlier in our human development, we had to be together in groups. Otherwise, you know, somebody who was ostracized from a group probably wasn't going to survive. Right. And and what it comes down to when you think about the topic of, you know, the themes explored in her is like, what is your reality? Right. And what it, what is it that it it looks and feels real to you? And if you have this OS that you interact with that has the ability to answer and respond to your questions the way a human being would and has the ability to, even if it is at a programmable level, um, respond to the same way a spouse would or, or a significant other would, then it, it doesn't, then it makes sense that your response would be to like imprint on it and, and um, for lack of a better word, fall in love. I totally get that. I can't imagine being George Lucas having listened to one more person tell me what I don't know when I made a billion dollar franchise and no one believed me the first time. You know, so I think he kind of got in a weird, hard place where right. he, he didn't he I don't think he had a, a great source for critical feedback. Also, too, I think as well, part of it is n is not always the writing, although that element is there. I think part of it is the execution of what he has on the page which again speaks to what i'm talking about with like accomplishment it's like when you think you've arrived oh i don't need to study i don't need to up my game i don't need to keep sharp and i think he kind of suffered from that a little bit because then you like like what yolanda said when you get to the you know the prequels or whatever they, i mean the the direction and the way things are done the execution is not for a lot of things is not done well i mean like I, you could have had some of the exact same scenes play entirely differently yes. with different direction and performances with the exact same words yeah. or even, you know, revising or tweaking a little bit of dialogue and have those films actually work better. And, and to be honest, I think the stories themselves are, are, are great. I don't have any, like you look at Phantom Menace, you know, like it, it, you talk about being epic. It's like, there's an embargo on a whole planet. 
And that's going to, if you don't think that's going to start a war, of course, it's a great idea. It's a great launching pad. But then the, 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 you know, the execution of it was just, I mean, if you lost Jar Jar, that would help so much or, you know, minimize him or play him for real. I mean, there was, there's, you know, direct the pod race differently. Yeah. There's just cutesy things in there that are, it, it starts getting really cutesy. And I think, uh, like I know George has said, like, well, I wanted to make something for the kids. You know, it's always been about something I can make for kids. But I don't know if I really believe that when it came to Star Wars and Empire. I think that right. he was in earnest trying to make a mature sci-fi movie for everybody, not just kids, but that everybody would enjoy. And then I think I think almost like that was his response to the criticism of Jar Jar. Where, well, I'm just doing something for the kids. And then like when Chewbacca swings across a vine onto a an attic. Oh, I know. And it's oh. And then they had that in uh, Revenge of the Sith. Yeah. Like Yoda was riding on the back of two Wookiees, and they swing down on some water on on the on the um the uh, robot army that's uh, the droid army that's coming to attack them. And the the both Wookiees do the Tarzan call again. I'm like that just it rips you out of the story. It's just corny, and there's no reason for it. Yeah. None compared yeah. to what you know when you're looking at Star Wars. Just that would not have happened in Star Wars. Luke Skywalker didn't go, oh, we right. had Leia going across the thing in, in, the, in the Death Star. Right. But, you know, maybe if it was the third film, George might have had him do that. You know, hey, you know, you know, Mark, what might be good is if you do a little Tarzan yell when you swing across. I don't know. But that's, you know, right. and I don't want to rip on. I hate, I hate, it's so easy to rip on George, whatever. But, again, I think these franchises are, this franchise is incredible. I don't want to just sit here and bash it, but I think yeah. the tone – and you had Chris Huntley on, uh, I believe, for their first Star Wars right. analysis or podcast. And, I, and one of the points you made really struck me, and it, it really is about tone. I think it's a, a lot of what people have yeah. a problem with it's is the tone. Yeah. It's like Chris made a point to uh, – or Chris pointed out in the prequels how like he got caught between several different tones. And one was like very kitty, but then it would switch to something more serious and dealing with politics and then jump back to something more kitty. And that, that wavering between what you're really trying to do, I think really uh, – I, I, I think that brings people out of the story because then it leads you open to making you know Tarzan sounds. Or adding certain things. I, again, I don't think those creatures were in the original screening of Star Wars. Uh, uh, or, or, I'm sorry, Return of the Jedi, when when the droids are walking up to the palace. I believe it was added in the because I remember not liking it when I saw it when I had the the v, VHS version at home. Well, what is, this is corny. Like, and and even just think about the things that they've added. Like when he goes back and redoes things for Star Wars, nothing ever made the story better. It's all for it's all bells and whistles, and you yeah. know. Frilly stuff. So I mean, it's almost not necessary. Yeah. I think that's the fatal flaw in um, Inception, because our main character and characters understand Inception, like they get it, like they all know how to whatever Incept or whatever the heck. Um, so they have to introduce another character in order to say what is this, and so they can explain it. To the audience, um, I had a difficult time. I love Interstellar and I love Inception, so there's not you know anything negative against it. Right. Um, but there's a time when you have these astrophysicists sitting up in the thing talking about how a wormhole and time works, and I'm thinking, but they all like they all know it. Like that's why are they explaining it like a child? Like oh, here's how a wormhole works, and like well, but they all kind of they all would get that, and and that doesn't really make sense. Versus someone like. Again, usually a fish out of water like, what are you guys even talking about? Uh, okay, let me explain it to you like you're an idiot. 
All right, so I've I've heard that argument before, and here's the one defense I would give to that scene because I know the scene you're talking about. The defense I would give to that scene is, and the way I remember it, he's not really describing how wormhole works so much. He's responding to McConaughey's surprise that the wormhole is a sphere, whereas you're used to you're thinking of like a whirlpool, like what you've seen before, and so I always got it more like. Like McConaughey's a pilot, but he's not like – and pilots have to be smart, albeit. Yeah. But you don't get the idea that he's a PhD in natural physics, right? Sure, um, for sure. And so I always get the impression that that character is is really describing – yeah, he's laying the foundation a little bit about how wormhole works. But he's describing why it looks like a sphere as opposed to a whirlpool in space, which is how most people think of like black holes and, and, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. But there's an assumption of knowledge. I, mean, I sure. agree with that. Yeah. I agree with that. But there's an assumption of knowledge even for the audience. This is where, um, you know, the main criticism of Nolan films, uh, mm-hmm. that the audience has a base knowledge of quantum theory. And if you don't have it, you know, there has to be kind of somewhat of an assumption to it versus, say, The Martian, where uh, Matt Dillon is being um, – um, uh, not Matt Dillon. That's not right. Um, Matt Damon. Matt Damon, yeah, <laughs> very, very different guy. Uh, Matt Damon is, you know, explaining everything in detail to the camera because he's as if he's talking to a normal person because he knows people will watch these tapes, um, and so he's not shortcutting information. Uh, he's and so he's talking like he's talking to a, a, a class of high schoolers, and that's awesome and that's fun and we believe it because otherwise, how else is he explaining what he's doing um, other than just it being in his head? Uh, so th- there has to be, I guess, like a device, I feel like, for you to explain. That's usually where the mentor role. And I would say, like, contrast Inception with um, The Matrix. So they both have a high-concept world that they have to deconstruct our modern world and rebuild it from scratch. Neo doesn't know crap about it. He, and he's like us. I, I think the world is this way. And now Morpheus, the mentor, has to lay it out and explain to him because and it's natural and we just listen in and we learn as as neo learns um and that's where you know when inception there was nobody who needed that information so they had to bring someone in and it wasn't the main character which was a very that's kind of a departure from it and again it works i get it it was fun i loved it you know walk away you know getting it but that character who was the the person to be explained to shows up later they're not the main character and there's a bit of a dissonance there on just how we're used to seeing movies. So, yeah, not a criticism. It's just a different way. And I think uh, to diagnose, oh, why does that – why do certain people not like that uh, versus like uh, – but they completely believe in the Matrix breakdown. And I think part of it is in the telling of the story. 